economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and main agent chair of economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Bernard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my fellow producer, graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Well, a few podcasts ago, or previous podcast, not too long ago, we tackled abortion. And I believe it was there that we got into something called a supererogatory. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it talked about moral permissibility and what are we supposed to do, I think. I don't know. Dr. Clark, take it away. We need a little more info on this. Yeah. So in ethics, the category of the supererogatory, we can just run that supererogatory, right? Uh, The same way that people make Toronto, a single syllable. Okay, right? got it. <laughs> An act is supererogatory if it would be something that is good if you would do it. It's morally good, but not morally required. Okay. So this, I know when you were doing the introduction, you mentioned permissibility and moral requirements. So for there to be a class of acts that are supererogatory, Moral permissibility and moral requirements can't be the exact same thing. These have to be different lines, right? That what you are permitted to do is that what you are required to do isn't what you are always permitted to do, if that makes sense. There are things that you are morally permitted to do that you aren't required to do, and that actually would be good if you did them. And and is this taking it from an external source, like let's say the Bible, since this is our faith in economics, that the permissibility of it or the or not or the requirement comes externally it's not something we determine ourselves or it could come from social constructs of everyone is at each other's throats about what acts are supererogatory and whether supererogatory acts even exist so okay. even within christianity different sects disagree about whether or not there are supererogatory acts maybe it would be good to use like an example So sometimes we hear about acts of heroism in the news, like somebody will notice that someone had a seizure on a train platform and the person is writhing on the tracks and a stranger who doesn't know this person jumps down, pins the person down as the train comes to a stop over the person who the train otherwise would have killed, right? This like... And, you know, in the standard ethics textbooks, they give you the actual name of the person who did this, right? Because this is an actual story that happened. Oh. Uh, you know, and uh, most people's intuition in this case is that it was good that the stranger did this thing, right? But that it was extremely risky for the stranger to do this thing. And they also think that the stranger was not required to do this thing, even though it was good that they did it. It was kind of going above and beyond what was morally required of the person at this time. Does that make sense to you normal people? <laughs> yes. Uh, no. It's ready to well, laugh. I obviously wasn't addressing you. <laughs> I, said, I, mean, I, you I know what you said. <laughs> oh. 
So I need to ask a question, Justin, here for clarification. I feel like a lot of work is being done by this word required. What on earth does it mean to be required to do something? How could we think of someone as being required to do something by like the rules of morality? What does that mean? Because like gravity requires that you stay pulled towards the ground and you can, can jump up, but it pulls you back down. That requirement makes sense to me. What does moral requirement mean? See, I don't know. I think the gravity requirement doesn't make sense, but moral <laughs> requirements are just like, look, these are the rules. And if you go afoul of these rules, you have broken the rules, right? So like in, in any game, like a game of football, you know, a false start is a five-yard penalty, right? You are required not to move for a certain amount of time. If you do uh, do something else, you break the rules, right? So whether or not there is supererogatory whether or not those acts exist is going to depend on what the set of rules are too. And that's, you know, people who have different conceptions of what the moral rules are and have different disagreements about what acts are supererogatory. But if the question is just, what does it mean to be morally required? It's just what the rules say you have to do. And if you, if you don't do them, then you have fallen, you know, you've run do, afoul of those rules. Do you think there has to be a, a penalty or punishment associated with whether we call it a requirement or not. I'm thinking like it could be a monetary fine. It could be time in jail. It could be people not thinking well of you might be a punishment that you get if it was some sort of morally social requirement that they think less of you. All I'm trying to say is for the definition of a, a moral requirement, does there have to be some sort of penalty or punishment consequence if you don't follow it? So it's some sort of institutional rule. I, I think I know what you're driving at, but I would deny this as like a, a way of separating out the two, because to me, even some things that I I think would be, even if we have this distinction, I still think some things that are immoral should be punished. Like some things that even if I agreed with this distinction, that there are some extra things that you can do, but don't have to do to, to follow the moral rules. I would even say there's things that are against the moral rules that I think it's okay for you to do. I think that like destroying your own life with drugs and alcohol is an immoral thing to do. It's not supererogatory or however we say it with the combination to, to not do drugs and alcohol. It's actually for me, a moral rule, moral requirements. And I, I think decently standard one, we could agree. And I still don't think that should be punished, at least not by like laws or things like that. Yeah. And the, and the other danger here is that we could just run in the opposite direction and say, well, maybe it, it is its own punishment or something, or people will yeah. think badly of you, in which case we have diluted the concept of punishment so much that, mm -hmm. that anything counts as a punishment, right? I would say that we don't really have to talk about whether or not they require it. It's required to have a punishment. So Peter, you look perplexed, which perplexes me because I thought I was agreeing with you. <laughs> well, so I sort of like it was agreeing with your premise when giving that explanation. No, I agree with you. I'm still kind of perplexed by the whole concept. I'm trying to understand what it means to have moral rules. And so we would, or, you know, this distinction of supererogatory not would agree that it was like more moral for that person to jump on the tracks and save the person, right? Than to not do it. Or is that a, a no? They would say that it's good that they did it. Is it they more weren't good? morally required to? Is it more good? That sure. They did it, then they didn't do it. Okay. Now, so let me stop you here. Yes, go ahead. So it sounds like what you're going to say is, since it was more moral, surely the most moral is what you have to do. And what the person who's committed to the existence of the supererogatory is going to say, no, that is exactly what I'm saying. That there is a line for moral requirement that is below 
the absolute best thing that you can do. Yeah. So my question was, why isn't the rule that you always do the most moral thing? Like, why isn't that the rule? What is, I guess what I'm asking is like, what in the nature of that action, since if we can agree that it's more moral to do one thing, or at least more good to do one thing rather than the other thing, how is that any different than any other action? You know, choosing not to shoot someone or to shoot someone. Like the, these are relative. One of them is more moral. One of them is less moral. So why is it that at this level, it's, you know, you're not required, but at the lower level, you can't shoot someone that is a requirement. Usually this is put forward as a response to the demandingness objection, which is that if we always morally require of everybody the absolute best thing to do, depending on what we actually consider the best thing to do is, right? And this is going to depend on what we count the right moral rules to be. But for almost any set of moral rules that we're going to come up with, it's going to turn out that almost everybody is unethical almost all of the time. Mm -hmm. And insofar as ethics is supposed to tell us what to do or how we ought to live our lives, it's going to turn out that the kind of lives that ethics tells us to live on these very strict moral codes, if we don't admit the supererogatory, are going to be kinds of lives that a lot of people actually don't, wouldn't even find worthwhile living. They are going to involve, like if we just take the classic examples like utilitarian ethics, right, which says an act is right insofar as it maximizes aggregate happiness. That and uh, utilitarian ethics doesn't make any distinction between, you know, your family or, you know, somebody across the globe or whatever. So that means you ought morally to be devoting all your time to not not trying to prefer your children. You are just trying to take acts which maximize global happiness. Right. And most of us think that that's that's not a life worth living. Now, (laughs) the objection here can be, yeah, well, utilitarian ethics is wrong. Right. Sure. And, you know, I'm not a utilitarian, right? But until we come up with an ethics that we all agree on ahead of time, then it seems like at least the concept of the supererogatory, it seems like something that most people accept. So why couldn't it be the case that instead that there is some sort, maybe it's not utilitarianism, in fact, I don't think it is, but there is some correct set of like, you know, some correct set of moral rules out there that if you could follow it, you could live the best life, but no one wants to live by that correct set of moral rules, but it's still the rule. And so, yes, it's very demanding because yes, it's very demanding. And you know, that, that doesn't change whether or not it's the moral standard. It only changes whether we believe people actually follow it. Yeah. So aside from your remark that, but it's not utilitarianism, right? This is exactly what utilitarians say. This is what Peter Singer says. Yeah. Peter Singer goes, you know, you're morally required to donate almost all of your salary to charity. I don't because I'm not a moral saint, right? And this is me being Peter Singer here. I donate more of my salary than the average person, which makes me better than the average person. (laughs) But, you know, I would be a better person if I donated more and I'm not. And so I'm not a better person. So I want to weave in the biblical idea of law and gospel Mm -hmm. as far as Luther expounds it. Lutheran scholars would say, you can take the Bible and go through every place in it and highlight with one highlighter what's law 
and with another highlighter with what's gospel. And so gospel is the saving grace of Jesus Christ that, that has no requirement, no work requirement. Law, on the other hand, is every single thing that makes a demand on you morally or otherwise is the law. And it's there to tell you that you can't keep the law, which is what I'm kind of hearing a little bit here, mm -hmm. that morally we are doomed because we nobody can keep this yeah. highest standard that maybe Peter is saying. And, mm -hmm. and so that's what came to mind for me with, was to think of the biblical aspect of this with the law. And that's exactly the point yeah. is that we're all ruined. We're all sinners. We're all corrupt at various levels. And the, it's really our levels of badness, not goodness that we're, <laughs> that we're maybe looking at. Yeah, no, Russ, you, you anticipated something I've been building towards here, I think, which is that, you know, I, I have intellectual predisposition here. I, I look at things through the lens of the Bible. And what the Bible tells me is that, that's why I started off with this question of required for what. And so I actually don't think like, for example, to get into heaven, I don't think there are any actions that are required. I think you can live a completely immoral terrible life. I think you can go, you know, kill a lot of people, do a lot of terrible things, genocide. <laughs> but at the end of your life, to me, if you surrender your life to someone who has lived a perfect life, the only person to live a perfect life, Jesus, that's actually all that's required of you. And that's not like a specific action, but it's a response. We could say, oh, you know, uh, an acceptance that you do. And so I don't think anything's required to like go to heaven, but I do think if we're asking required for a moral standard, yeah, I, I don't think anybody lives up to the moral standard. I accept this. I don't live up to the moral standard. Kind of like what Singer would say. I, I wouldn't use utilitarianism. I would use, you know, the Bible and my standard of goodness. Like, does it bring glory to God? Any action that you do that doesn't bring the most possible glory to God with the intention that it brings the most possible glory to God is falling short of that standard. And I don't do that. And I've never met anybody who does that. I've never known anybody who's, who've, who's done that. All right, so this looks like a good time for a break. And so the cliffhanger is going to be, Peter, would you throw yourself on the person with the seizure or not? We'll be back in just a bit. Please visit our Gortney website. There you'll find our events, blog, and our swag shop. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PovertySucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Please check our show notes for this episode add extra information for us and we put extra effort for you guys there. If you have a high school student that's a junior or senior, we have a great opportunity for you to come visit Ottawa University for our PPE Fest. PPE is philosophy, politics, and economics, and it's a competition. We've got some great international speakers, TK Coleman of Fee and Dr. Jim Wartney will be speaking, and then there'll be a day of activities, competitions on PPE. If you or somebody else you know would enjoy an opportunity like that, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. Okay, so we're back. The cliffhanger was, will Peter jump on the seizure person? I, I, on, the plat seizure on the train person. platform that some other heroic person did. To answer your question, or I, was there even something more to do besides just jumping on the seizure person? I don't know. But. I, I don't know about that one. To answer your question, uh, the answer is I don't know what I would actually do, but I believe the correct thing to do would be to do that. Like if I were doing the thing that were the most good, to do mm -hmm. the most good would involve me doing that. You know, the, the Bible tells us there's no greater love than to lay down your life as your friend. 
Bible also tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes on to tell us everybody's our neighbor. <laughs> so, you know, this seems like a very straightforward implication that if I'm on the tracks, I would want me to jump on and save myself. It seems to be something that would be if I want to do the moral thing that I would do. That doesn't mean I would do it. And I wouldn't, you know, be eternally punished for not doing it. But it seems like it'd be the right thing to do. I just have to push back a little bit on the neighbor thing, because that's something that's a little near and dear to something I thought about, is that I think the use of the word neighbor was intentional, and it relates a little bit to Dr. Clark's concept of permissible partiality, that you have a stronger moral obligation to those people who are close to you, which I think that's the neighbor reference. I don't know if I've ever gone back to hear the Hebrew and Greek, but that we don't have the utilitarian concept that everybody's your neighbor, because why wouldn't that thing said, instead of love thy neighbor as yourself, love every single person on the world as yourself? Why use the word neighbor? Well, Russ, who's closer to you than the guy right on the tracks in front of you? So you couldn't be much closer than that. No, but, but no, 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 I, that's I'm true. I, no, no, I, I, I'm joking, but that's the, the Samaritan who's beaten up. So the, the one thing I'll say is in, in that scripture, the reason that this verse comes up is basically this lawyer comes up to Jesus and he's looking for a way out looking like, well, who do I have to love? You know, what do the, and Jesus says? What do the scriptures say? Yeah, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, but who's my neighbor? So like in this guy's heart, what he's trying to do is he's trying to figure out the way that he can do the least possible stuff and still fulfill the, the law. And so Jesus basically says that attitude that your heart has of trying to minimize your work is itself the problem. And everyone is your neighbor. He's, Jesus basically says, and so I think that if you're approaching this with the attitude of, well, you know, I don't want to jump on the tracks to save this person. And so I think I will try to figure out, well, I have an obligation to my family. And so I, so I shouldn't jump on the tracks because that'll leave them high and dry. If the motivation in your heart is I don't want to jump on the tracks and you're using this as an excuse, that's a problem. If you seriously, maybe morally believe that you know, your family will be destitute without you. That's maybe a different story. And I, I, I by the way, agree with the Justin's principle of permissible partiality. I do think we have more of an obligation to the people who we've agreed to have an obligation to, like our family. Yeah, I have one more level on that thought experiment is that you are on the platform holding the hand of three-year-old Cedar while the person's having the seizure. Do you let go of the hand knowing that 99% chance Cedar's going to stay put and not follow you close to the person that you're trying to save that's in danger near the train? Or do you just watch the person with the seizure and hope that somebody else helps? You know that you're not heavy enough alone. You need to put Cedar under you and both of you <laughs> and talk like Oh, yeah. Yet another level of that experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's nowhere in the Bible that says there's no greater love than this than to lay down somebody else's life for a friend. <laughs> that, that's, that's not in there. Um, you know, actually, there's a verse in Luke, Jesus and the apostles and had some messengers to a city. A Samaritan city and the Samaritan city says, eh, we don't want to see this Jesus guy. He cares about Jerusalem. We don't care about Jerusalem. We don't want him. And so James and John come up to Jesus and say, hey, what do you say that we call down fire from God onto this town and destroy it? And Jesus rebukes them. The point of the story is that I, I don't think it's appropriate for Christians to sacrifice others in your mission to save people. And I think that applies to this case too, that me it depends like if i don't think cedar is going to follow me on the tracks i go and do it if i do i don't uh because i i think that sacrificing someone else is not appropriate and like 99 percent one percent i don't know i in a way like those probabilities are nice but 
at the end, in the moment, you're making a decision on what you believe to be true, not probability. So, Dr. Clark, where does that fall in the supererogatory there with these additional levels? As usual, I'm, <laughs> I regret bringing up the thought experiment that I brought up at the beginning. <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, and I actually think that the jumping on the tracks thought experiment, it's usually to kind of prime people's intuition that like, oh, I guess he did a really good thing. I probably wouldn't have done that. I'd probably be morally permitted not to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think the income, the donation, like percentage of your income to charity is a Mm -hmm. more accurate thought experiment because the jumping on the person in the train uh, situation does happen so quickly that it's usually not something that you reflect on or run probabilities. And you don't think like, am I going to be, you know, a little more reactionary. Yeah. And and if you ask the people who do these heroic Mm -hmm. acts, you know, what they were thinking, they usually say, I wasn't thinking, right. Um, I just acted. But you know, nobody says that, you know, when you go, why did you donate so much of your uh, income to charity? Nobody goes, I didn't think I just, you know, I just donate it. Right. Uh, you know, people have answers for why they do that kind mm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will say that sometimes the debate around supererogatory actions and moral permissibility, sometimes I think these debates tend to turn into things that are merely semantic. That is just about the meaning of the words because you can have two classes of people. And indeed, you know, I think the Catholics and the Lutherans, for example, disagree about whether or not supererogatory actions exist. Mm. So they both agree on the ideal of what a life is, right? They both say like Jesus, you know, was the ideal, a perfect life, etc. They both agree that broadly about what counts as a human life well lived for a commoner. And they, they still disagree about what, where to class certain actions as morally permissible, but not morally perfect or not morally permissible because not morally perfect. Does that make sense? I know what you're saying. And In Catholicism, we have the idea of venial sin and mortal sin, right? This is classifying actions of versus something you know, bad, but maybe it's, you know, okay. every once in a while, it's not so bad, but and then there's this, this deeper mortal sin idea, which is like, even once, you know, this is not permissible and it has a permanent effect on you, something special. Yeah. Well, let's say you and I, Peter, are out building houses for charity, mm-hmm. right? And it's like five o'clock and we've been building houses all day. And the GIs are aghast because they can't imagine me doing anything to help anybody else. So suppose we have been doing, and I say, I think we've done enough for, for today. Let's pack it in. Right. And you say, okay. And it seems like that's, we could agree about that. And then later on disagree about whether or not what we had done is like perfect or whatever. We could also disagree about whether or not we want to donate, you know, some of our time to go build those houses or whether or not we want to, you know, if that would take up our vacation time, that's time that we could spend with our family or whatever. Um, And it seems to me that the real debates that we have about what we ought to do are these first order debates about whether or not we should go help some people rather than take our vacation time or something like that, rather than debates about whether or not what class these things fall into, whether they're not required because they're not morally perfect, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. So I think I know what you're saying. I think my understanding of these things is collapsing them. And so to me, these two things are collapsed that the action that you should take actually always is, you know, I'm saying is always the rule, right? So I guess I'm finding my understanding by collapsing these two. Do you agree with me there that by ignoring the supererogatory, I've collapsed these things onto each other? Yeah. That you are collapsing permitted and required. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. That you think that things are impermissible because they aren't perfect. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that morality exists as this kind of guiding North star to tell us what is perfect. Yeah. Right. Or on the other hand, to tell us what's imperfect. Right. To highlight imperfection. To highlight that. Yeah. So this is another area where I think like different people have just different conceptions of what the word morality means too. Right. You could think that the purpose of morality is to point out what is perfect Or you could think that the purpose of morality is something that should tell you, the average person, how you can live your life in a way that you would find acceptable, right? Which, so like utilitarianism says, this is the perfect way to live your life, right? There's one right action for each set of possibilities that you are offered. And it is this one that, you know, maximizes utility. Sure. And it's, and then it's going to turn out that most people are almost all the time immoral, failing to meet right? the standard. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so the standard of morality that you were talking about or where it's perfect, then you also sometimes find that there's some difficulty with that insofar as you also think that immoral actions ought to be punished or are blameworthy in a certain sense, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think that immoral actions are such that they ought to be punished, then if it also turns out that everyone's immoral almost all of the time, that can run you into some problems too. I think you've already anticipated the question I had was, what is this, basically I want to know, what is this having this weird standard of like rules purchase you at all? Why can't we just say things are, you know, more good or less good? And that solves all of it. And what you're saying is when we come to Russ's first question, when we come to you, should there be certain things that are punished? maybe the standard has some value for us. I think that's interesting. On my view, from like a cosmic angle, from like an ultimate, you know, angle, I actually do think all bad things that people do are punishment worthy. And actually, there's not little bad things. I think, you know, from a a Christian perspective, anytime that you're like intentionally disobeying the creator, like you could think of this as, oh, I just lied. Or you could think of it like, yes, you committed cosmic treason. And actually, there's nothing worse than cosmic treason, right? Treason against like the creator and ruler of the entire universe. Like can't imagine much worse than that in my view. And so to me, all of those things warrant punishment, which is why, you know, on my view, the the gospel is telling us that, well, we just have to, instead of trying to merit, you know, escape from that punishment, because we're unable to do that, we have to put our trust in someone who did merit it. The only person who did merit it, Jesus. And so that's my connection. But I also wanted to get to I think you had a question for me earlier before the break because you were squinting angrily at me. Uh, and I wanted to see if you still had that question or if it's gone away. Oh, yeah. This is just when you were saying that I don't think there's anything that you actually have to do. And then you listed one requirement for something that you had. To so do. this didn't count as an action. It counts as sure. something yeah, else, yeah. which is an act. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything required of you to avoid punishment for wrongdoing. I think there is something that's required of someone else. And so I think ultimately, in order to be saved, God has to do something for you. 
God has to actively change your heart to be someone who looks for repentance, looks for redemption, who, who has faith. And so ultimately to me, there is a requirement, but it's not your requirements. Mm. Someone else is checking the box. Uh, and so that's not you doing. It. Okay. Yeah. So there's some yeah. requirement, but it's not your requirement. Yeah. Okay. I'm confused, struggling with this one a little bit. Uh, it's amazing where this conversation's gone. So I'm anxious to hear what you guys have to say about Jesus. And we're saying that he was morally perfect. Yes. So when Jesus goes out to heal somebody, did he heal everybody? I don't think we have any biblical evidence to say that he healed everybody that had a problem. So wouldn't it have been better as he healed one leper or somebody else, pick whatever you want, wouldn't it have been better if he healed the other person that was 10 foot away too? No. Okay. Only insofar as you also believe utilitarianism is true. But jump to one of the things that I wanted to point out about this like blame and punishment <laughs> thing too, is that one of the reasons this conception, this question about the distinction about morality becomes, you know, kind of where the rubber hits the road is that when we ask what kind of political structures you want to set up, one of the questions we ask is what should be legal and what should be illegal yes. and how should we punish those things? Mm -hmm. And it's the way we answer a lot of questions about what should be legal is we ask, well, what actions are moral, right? Not all of them, right? It's not sure. immoral to drive on the left-hand side of the road versus the right-hand side of the road. But the reason we think that murder merits life in prison or the death penalty, depending on where you fall here, right, is that you think this act is very, very immoral. Sure. Yep. Um, so we do think that there are some lines that we need to draw um, about morality and sometimes the danger that you can fall into if you say what counts as uh, the only thing that counts as moral is what's perfect is that now we have to draw all these distinctions about you know all these other immoral acts right yeah and then if we end up saying well okay some of these are like double triple immoral like uh, murder or whatever it's it's one of the really really immoral acts yeah it can turn out that what you're calling really really immoral is just what somebody else calls immoral and then what you call immoral but not punishable is just what they call you know permissible but not perfect that kind of thing and so that's where i think yeah we need to recognize that we do need to draw some distinctions here especially if we're going to set up a political order and that's how we can find out that oh maybe our disagreement might be semantic in this case so uh, there's a reason i went right to the cosmic it's because i don't actually have an answer for the political this is an issue that i punt on and so how do I figure out what moral or immoral actions should be made illegal? I don't have a good rule for that. I'm not like a theocrat, I, or at least not in like the sense of the word that's usually used. I do believe God's in charge of everything, but I, I don't believe our goal in America should be to create like a Christian government. I, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, using the principles laid out in the Bible to guide our laws. I don't know that that was the intention of Jesus. In fact, he, he didn't come to make an earthly kingdom. Again, at least not in the sense people usually think of theocracy. So I don't know. This is something that I more and more recently am punting on. It's something that I'm, I'm trying to come to an answer to. But I agree with you, Justin, that there seems to be a case where the rubber hits the road and you need to be able to distinguish an, an action that is moral, but something that we shouldn't legally require someone to do. And I think that that's a reasonable thing to say, is that there are some things that are moral, but shouldn't be legally required. So to circle back to my question, because I'm not quite satisfied yet. So isn't it kind of a tautology that we say Jesus is moral perfection. And so he, you know, couldn't have done anything 
I'm trying to relate this back to us. And, and I think the answer is that Jesus had an objective, right? To save the world. Mm-hmm. I didn't come here to condemn the world. I came to save the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with that objective, the life was lived and that was moral perfection. But is it impossible for us to say that he couldn't have done things better by saving another person? Because it's really a tautology. If that is our benchmark, and then we're basing everything around it. Justin can answer how he wants. There is a sense in which th- this <laughs> well, is. Well, that's nice that you gave yeah, him that freedom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just was about to say something that I interrupted him. That's why I said that. I imagine our answers will be a little, maybe a little different here, but to a certain extent, like I think there's a, a tautology going here. I think goodness is defined by the person who created everything. And so like, I think the nature of God basically defines goodness. Now we could still, you know, we know principles of what that goodness looks like. You know, the 10 commandments are an example of things that God does not do coveting a neighbor's stuff. I mean, it's kind of impossible for God because everything's his in a way, but you know, all these, these different principles in the Bible, you know, Jesus loves that lives out. And you know, the two great commandments to love your Lord, the Lord, your God, and to love your neighbors yourself, Jesus clearly lives out. And so we could measure, you know, we could look at Jesus's life and see, is there a departure there from loving the neighbor? And, and I don't think there is. So in a way there's a, a tautology going on here, but we also have like an insight onto what like that tautology looks like. So if Jesus ever departed from that tautology, we'd be able to see it. I just happen to think that he doesn't. There, you can't point to any instance where Jesus doesn't make things better at the situation he's at. And to answer the, I just said no kind of flippantly, but to answer why like healing one more person wouldn't be good, it's because, you know, God is all knowing. And sometimes afflictions are actually beneficial. We don't like to think of that. No one voluntarily takes on afflictions. But sometimes people can learn more and have a better life from an affliction than they would if they went through life with no affliction at all. And that's something that we can't know. And we don't know exactly what that looks like all the time. But there are instances where a person, you know, develops some sort of disability and they're grateful for that. And they explain why they're grateful. You know, this has happened. It's a problem of evil problem. Yeah. Yeah. So dancing around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is I give the same answer to this as to the problem of evil, which is something like who are you to know the mind of god type of thing sure. right where it's like if you accept as like an axiom or whatever that jesus life was perfect uh, you can accept that and go well it seems like he could have cured more people he didn't uh, except as an axiom that jesus was perfect there it's obviously a reason that he did the things that he did blah 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 it seems like he's been very influential despite not hearing healing that second person maybe it's beyond my understanding to try to go in there and, you know, Monday morning quarterback Jesus and just go, yeah, I accept that Jesus is perfect. Therefore, what he did, he, yeah, and what he did was perfect. I, I wanted to add that my limited knowledge of Islam, they have stories about Jesus that would actually question the moral perfection. I think there's a, again, I'm drawn from way back when, but a, a lightning bolt story of when Jesus was little and he did some sort of power, but it actually hurt somebody is one of the stories about Jesus in, in Islam. That was, of course, never accepted by the Catholic church that that's part of a part of the Bible, right. Or the council of Nicaea or or anything like that. But there are people out there that might question that or other religions. And that's part of their belief system. So I don't know why I wanted to throw that out, but I just thought it's kind of chipping away at what I was getting at, that we're defining ourselves by that life of Jesus. And so it's somewhat axiomatic. Yeah. And just like any axiom, just because it's an axiom, you can still develop proofs. 
And so like with a math equation, you can show how one math equation is the same as the another math equation and you prove it, you show your work. You can do a similar thing with the Bible. Like I said, we know these two great commandments, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor. We can pull out moments in Jesus's life and see, you know, did he depart from this? And so, you know, we can trace back to any individual moment, you know, the overturning of the tables in the temple. Maybe this is one. Jesus is really angry. He's flipping over tables. You look at the context of this, it's actually pretty reasonable. The people at the tables are basically using the tables to steal and they're doing the stealing in, you know, God's house, the temple, his father's house, Jesus' father's house. Yeah. And so, you know, you can back out of this. It's like, nope, this actually isn't an instance where Jesus is like not loving his neighbor. In fact, it's probably pretty loving to stop theft. You know, I think it is an axiom, but we can back out proofs with it. And then, and I don't think Peter's claiming that we can prove the existence of God, but there is proofs associated with some of those relationships, because we all know, since this is the faith and economics podcast, that it does come down to faith, which is yeah. accepting that belief without having all the hardcore evidence. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps others find us and feel free to share our podcast with others as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.